Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. About 10 years ago when I was in college, my buddies and I would always go to the uh, same place to study and pull our, our uh, all-nighters. And this was about the time that we um, started to take our faith seriously. we had all grown up in church, but it was about this time that the Word of God really started to come to life to us, and we started to own our faith. So we decided that uh, we really wanted to study God's Word. We really wanted to press into it. We thought that we would really start to memorize uh, large chunks of Scripture. And so we decided, of all places to start, that the best place would be Romans 6, which is where we're at today. And so on one particular study break, we said, hey, uh, let's get started studying some Scripture. And we said, all right. So we opened up each of our Bibles, and we just kind of started reading it. And he got about five verses in, and he goes, what does this even mean? And I said, I have no idea. And that's where we're going to be at today is Romans 6. So if you would please turn to Romans 6, you'll find it printed in your worship guide, and if we would honor God's Word by standing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps uh, this might sound to you like Paul's version of the classic Bob Newhart sketch on Mad TV where he can solve everybody's problems in five minutes, where somebody comes in and tells them what they struggle with, and his answer is always, stop it. This is essentially Paul just telling you, you have a new life. Stop it. Paul has been traveling around the ancient world, and he's been talking about this free gift of God's grace that has come to us in the work of Jesus, and how He has freed all men from slavery and sin and death by the goodness of His grace. And Paul knows the objections that people have to it. He knows what it makes people think. And he addresses that in the very first verse of chapter 6. He says, should we continue sinning that grace may abound? Paul had heard it many times over and over. Okay, Paul, well, by, by your, by your argument, sounds like I should just keep on sinning. If God is in the business of showing grace to, to sinners, shouldn't I just keep him in business and keep on sinning? If God is glorified by showing grace to the most awful of sinners, shouldn't I keep on sinning? Now, maybe we could put that question in a different light. Perhaps your child sins and acts up, and you go to discipline them, and they say, but mummy, I am sinning that God's glory would abound. Who are you to discipline me? And evidently your children have bad British accents. But there's just probably something that doesn't quite sit well with you when you hear that. But you have to correct them and tell them that's not quite the case. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us, because we treat God the same way. We want our sin, and we want God. Paul is telling us we can't have both. So should we continue to sin that grace would abound? And Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't understand grace. Paul's argument to show us that is baptism. And that may seem like an odd place to start, baptism. Why would Paul start there to talk about grace? Well, if you've ever been to a play or a musical, you understand the importance of context. You watch this, you watch the actors unveil this story before you in front of this huge backdrop that provides a setting and an understanding for the context at which this story is playing out. But if you lost the backdrop, you'd lose something because then you'd have to really strain your imagination to see this story and to root it in something to give it meaning and more value. And so, of course, we have trouble because we do this same thing with Romans, that we just kind of see Paul just put these arguments on a page. But the way they mean something is when we understand the backdrop by which he's writing all of this before us. And the backdrop of Romans 6 for Paul, making his argument for grace, is the Old Testament story of the Exodus. It's a story that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Exodus is the story of Israel. That after Joseph had died, Israel forgot, or Egypt forgot about Joseph. And Israel slowly became enslaved to Pharaoh. For 400 years, they were enslaved. And God hears their cries, God hears their pleas for mercy, and He hears their misery, and He rescues them. God sends Moses to deliver them from the oppression of Pharaoh, and He leads them out to the Red Sea. 
like we read today. And God parts the Red Sea, and Israel walks across on dry ground to the other side. And Pharaoh tries to chase after them. And when they get out into the waters, the waters close in around them, and they drown. From that moment on, Israel begins a new journey to experience the new freedom they had to learn all again about this new God and what it means to serve Him. And their slavery and their former life was in the rearview mirror and the promised land was ahead. And in one, one event, Pharaoh was defeated and Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and set free. And in Romans 6, Paul is telling us a new version of this story. He's telling us that that story points to something even greater, which is your baptism. He says, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Don't you know what it means to be baptized? Don't you know what your baptism means? See, baptism isn't something that we just kind of do as Christians. It's a part of Christian culture, Christian kitsch, you know, pointing up to Jesus after a touchdown, thanking JC after winning an Emmy, something like that, something we do publicly. Baptism is something altogether different. Baptism represents the certainty of God's promises to you. Baptism represents the certainty of God's promises to you. And that ancient promise that God gave Abraham that we talked about last week, that that ancient promise that is finally fulfilled, the fact that God fulfills His promises in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the freedom that Jesus purchased for us is from the greatest enemy of all, death. And that's what your baptism represents. The certainty of God's promises to you in Jesus. And that means that you are called out of slavery and sin. And you've been called on a new and final exodus. A new journey. And here we get to the heart of Paul's theology that will take us through the rest of the book of Romans. That somehow, by faith, you, in a mysterious and beautiful way, are united with the resurrected Jesus. He has bound you to Himself and you belong to Him. And if you are united with Him, then what is true of Jesus is true of you. And it says that when Jesus hung on the cross, you hung there with Him. When Jesus rose from the dead, you rose with Him. And death no longer has any power over Him. And if you are united with Him, then death no longer has any power over you. And that means you have become altogether a new type of human. A new type of human that death has no power over. Because now you stand on resurrection ground. Because grace is about transformation. Grace is about transforming you into something new altogether. And I've often heard, and maybe you have as well, I've often heard people talk about God's grace as, um, you know, just God just generally forgiving anything that you might do. It's just general forgiveness. It's God letting us off the hook, letting us go on our way. Regardless of what we do, God will forgive us. God sees our sin and chuckles at it. Says, oh, you guys, I guess sinners will be sinners. Nah, Jesus died for that. Come on into heaven. God's kind of this divine pushover without standards, without justice. Or in the words of the philosopher Heinrich Hein that Bill brought up a few weeks ago, of course God will forgive me. 
That's his job. That's what God does, right? Is he just forgives. And I would say to you that I would go so far to say that if the gospel is just mere basic forgiveness and it's not transformative, then it's not worth believing in. It's not worth believing in at all. Because it doesn't solve my greatest problems, my greatest fears, my greatest hopes, or my greatest desires. And it's not worth believing in. I love the movie uh, a Shawshank, The Shawshank Redemption. And that gives us a picture of what we're talking about. You have this picture of, I'm sure many of you have seen it, you have Andy Dufresne who's wrongfully accused of murder and he spends 18 years in Shawshank prison. And while he's there, he meets this, his friend Red and they get to know one another. And they build this incredible relationship. And Red begins to find his life different with Andy around. And they realize later on in the, in, in the years they've been together that Andy's driven by something different. He's driven by hope. He knows he's innocent and he hopes that one day he'll get out. And Red finds hope to be a very dangerous thing because all it's going to do is let you down. And sure enough, at the end of the movie, we see that incredible, spectacular escape where Andy escapes from Shawshank Prison and you see Red left behind in prison and life seems to take a different turn. Doesn't have the same color, doesn't have the same life and value that it once had. And Red comes to his parole hearing like he'd come to you a million times before and he gets denied. And he comes to this parole hearing and they said, Red, are you a rehabilitated man? And he says, look, if you're asking me if I regret what I did, there's not a day that goes by that I don't regret what I did. There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish I could go back and talk to that young man and talk some sense into him. I know what I did was wrong. And in that, Red is let off the hook. He's forgiven. They give him parole. And Red walks out of Shawshank Prison. But Red doesn't find his life any different. He goes and works at a grocery store. Nobody loves him. Nobody cares for him. Nobody tends to his needs. And life isn't what Red wants it to be. I mean, his debt's paid. Red's a free man. And yet he doesn't feel like his life has any value. He doesn't feel like it has any hope. Because his forgiveness just took him out into a world that was the exact same. And he was always afraid that what was in him would put him back in prison. And he always felt so close to going back to prison. And the only way that he could find freedom and hope was that he longed to be with his friend. It was that relationship that he wanted that gave him his life value and meaning and he sets out on a journey to be with him so that he could have fellowship. And my problem is just like Red's. It's not that I want just simply forgiveness for whatever I do. I could go out into the world and do anything at any time and God will just forgive me. My problem is the same as Red's. It's not just that I am out of prison. My real problem is what put me in prison in the first place. That's why I long for transformation. That if the gospel is just that I'm forgiven and I can go do my own thing, then it's not worth believing in because it leaves me unchanged and the world I live in unchanged. Because I know I have desires that require an infinite source to satisfy them. And I know myself, and I will search high and low, far and wide to find it. And I know I don't know what's best for myself. 
And I don't want just forgiveness to go pursue all the things I know won't find value. I want to know that I am forgiven by God so that He rushes to me and takes me and changes me and I have fellowship and union with the living God. Because I know that at any moment, I could ruin my own life. I know that to be a fact. And I know that I want to be forgiven so that I can pursue something better. I don't want to be forgiven so it's an excuse to pursue whatever I want. And this is what's so comforting about Paul's words. He says it's the grace of God that doesn't leave you as you are. It doesn't leave you hopeless and restless because God has given you Himself. And He knows that your wandering heart will not find rest in anything except Him. And so if God has removed the chasm between you, Paul is asking you, why would you want to put it back there? Why would you sin when it keeps you from the one thing that will meet all of your longings, all of your desires? And so should we sin to, should we, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? No. Because the good news about grace is that where grace abounds, sin dies and you change. And you are given new life. And your baptism tells you that you are on a new journey to be with Him forever. Now some of you may be thinking, you know, I, I still sin though. Death has no power over me, no dominion over me. Why do I, why do I still sin? I understand that God forgives me and I want that. I want that, but it doesn't feel like God is changing me. It doesn't feel like God is making me into anything new. I don't feel like I have a new life. This is where Paul asks the same question in verse 15, but he looks at it from a different perspective. He says, should we continue to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And he looks at it from a different angle and he says, no, if this is what you think, you don't understand the nature of sin. Because for Paul, sin is not just this act you commit when you have a bad day that you just kind of got to have some sort of forgiveness for. It's not just something you do when you're tired or worn out. Sin is a force for Paul. It's an enemy that has to be defeated. It's an enemy that wants to consume you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to dehumanize you. It wants to devour you. Imagine yourself like Peter hearing Jesus say that Satan has asked it and requested to sift you like wheat. He's asked to destroy you. Because sin is crouching, waiting to devour you. I love the story of Beautiful Mind. I'm very movie happy today, so uh, buckle up. But in the Beautiful Mind, we get a picture of this. We get a picture of what sin looks like. It's the story of John Nash. Brilliant, brilliant mind. Graduates at the top of his class at Harvard. Goes on and becomes a professor at Harvard to research, just to let his mind wander and solve so many of the world's problems. And he has a beautiful wife, a beautiful son, and everything is perfect. And one day, John has a visitor, a CIA agent played by Ed Harris, and he comes and he says, John, there's a worldwide conspiracy theory going on that only you can solve. Only you can do it. It's in every periodical, every journal, every movie, every book, every newspaper, every news broadcast, every TV show. It's there. You've got to find it. You've got to find it. A lot of people are dependent on you, John. A lot of people are dependent on you. 
don't fail us. Don't fail us. So John slowly begins to look, investigate periodicals, looks around, starts to try to maybe see if there's something there. And Ed Harris would return to him a few more times later and continue to encourage him to do it. And each time he'd give himself more and more and more to where he's actually living a second life that nobody else knows about. And he spends half of his time doing that, the other half of his time trying to hide it, trying to hide this life that he's living, the shame that he feels, but he doesn't know why, but he still runs into it because he wants to solve this problem. He has this longing that he wants to solve to have value and purpose and meaning, and it eventually costs him everything because it required all of him. And he loses his wife, he loses his son, he's no longer safe to be around, and you find him on his porch with a pack of lucky strikes, pale, and not even feeding himself. He's been completely dehumanized to a shell of what he once was. And that's a picture of sin. It's the perfect picture of the dehumanizing nature of sin, that it takes what's best of you and it destroys it. And what you think is so simple is more destructive than you could possibly ever know. And sin is always there, slowly tightening its grip on you, slowly waiting to devour you, because it doesn't just want a part of you. It wants all of you. And you think you've got an apple while it's tying a noose around your neck. And maybe we don't take grace seriously because we don't take sin seriously. And we believe the promises of sin are far better than the promises of grace. And in the book of Numbers, we see a real-life version of this. We see Israel having been completely rescued from the house of slavery in Egypt, and they go out into the wilderness. And in the book of Numbers, it's not very long on their way to the promised land, that they cry out against Moses and they say, let's turn back to Egypt. This is too hard. At least we had meat and onions. Really? Onions? You want to give up everything for onions. And there's something incredibly disturbing about that. That you can see the power of God displayed before you with the Red Sea and a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and still sin calls to you and says, come back, come back. It's better back here. You can't trust God. You have to look out for yourself. Come back. How powerful does sin have to be to pull that trick off? Because sin is more powerful than us. And we see in the wilderness, that we have a far greater enemy at work than Pharaoh. And sin convinces us to not trust God because it would be better to have onions. And we do the same thing all the time. We have those insatiable desires that we long to have satisfied and we sacrifice the health of our marriage for pornography. We sacrifice our children for the sake of our own success or value or status. We sacrifice relationships because we value our own independence. And ultimately, we sacrifice ourselves because we really think that it's worth pursuing. We really think that we'll be satisfied. And this is where Paul puts you to the question in verse 21. He says, What fruit were you getting from the things that you used to pursue of which you are now ashamed? He says, put your sins to the test. Put those things, those promises of sin to the test. What were they getting you? What did they earn you? What did they provide for you? How did the onions taste? 
How is it working out for you? And if you think about that, don't you long to taste something better? You long to taste something better. You belong, you long to believe in a better promise. In Romans 6, Paul is telling you that you have received the better promise. And he says you can believe it. And he says, present yourselves as those who have been raised from death to life because sin no longer has dominion over you. Now, why would he say that? He says, give everything you have to God. He tells you that the way you taste new life is through obedience. It's through obedience. And you might think, goodness, obedience, here we go. There's Christianity again. It's all about behavior. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. Don't misbehave. And that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is telling you that your obedience doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't earn your salvation. It doesn't earn you something. Obedience is how you taste the new resurrection life. And when you taste it, you want it more because the resurrection life that you've been given is better than the promises of sin. It's built on better promises. And it's precisely when you're tested that you can learn to turn away from the promises of sin and learn to face the promises of God. Because when you are tested, the promises of God are too. It's an offer to go all in on the promises that He gives you. And it's different because God's promises don't leave you in shame. When you're obedient, it doesn't leave you with guilt, sadness, pain, sorrow that comes from the broken promises of sin. It makes you feel the complete opposite. It makes you feel alive. It makes you feel like you have new life. It's how you taste where you're going on this final exodus. It's a taste of that new life now. And you may be hearing me and you may be thinking that I'm telling you, you know, just try harder. Just try harder to defeat sin in your life. Jesus took care of all that stuff over there. He took care of this, the dying part. Now you just need to worry about the sin part and do your part. Okay? Jesus did His part. You do yours. And that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying whatsoever. I think you know that when we try harder, we fall harder. Because not sinning is not a matter of just stronger willpower or just really not wanting to do it. It's not trying to white-knuckle your sin, and that will never work if you try it, because sin is stronger than you, and the more you look at it, it just deceives you, and you end up doing the very thing you hate. And Paul will tell you it's because you're looking at the wrong thing, and this is what Paul is after, because grace transforms you to see the world with new eyes. Grace transforms you to see the lies of sin. And look, I get it. Obedience is very, very hard. It's very hard. It's a process. We have to learn this new life that we've been given. We have to learn to walk in it. And Jesus knows it's hard. And you're tired of feeling shame. You're tired of feeling anger, frustration. Many of you have been riddled by sin your entire life. Many of you might even live a secret life you wouldn't want anybody to know about. And you're tired of it. That one thing that gnaws at you, you think about when you're at work, when you wake up, it's always there always tightening its grip around you, and you just want freedom. And you say to yourself, I wish I could change, but the promised land just seems too far away. It feels like I'm never going to get there. And I would say to you, maybe you need to be reminded of the Gospel and the love that is found there. 
You see, because we live our lives from one promise to the next, hoping that it's actually going to fully satisfy us. Hoping that this time it's going to be different. To satisfy the longings that we have. And there are plenty of promises to believe out there. There are plenty of promises to put your trust in that will make you whole. Sex, money, power, losing weight, Allah, Darwin, I Ching, doesn't matter. All of them make promises to you that you can finally be what you really want to be. And the problem is that none of those offer the promises of the gospel. None of them offer you what the gospel does because the gospel is still the best promise out there. It's still the best story. It's worth going all in on because there's nothing that tells you anything better. There's nothing that promises you more than the gospel does. And I know deep down that there's not anything out there with the willingness or ability to give me what I truly long for. And yet we live thinking that it will. And that's exactly why Paul tells us to remember our baptism. To bring it full circle. Because baptism is a sacrament that Jesus gave us. Baptism is a sacrament that calls us to remember what God has done. Paul is saying, stop looking at your sin. Stop trying to white-knuckle it. Stop trying to willpower yourself and say, I don't want to sin, I don't want to sin, I don't want to sin, and all of a sudden you do because it's more powerful than you are. He's saying, stop looking at your sin and change what you're looking at. Stop gazing at your sin and the problems and listening to it and listen to the voice of a better promise. Look at something else because you can't run to the promised land when you're looking back to Egypt. And this is why obedience is so important because to do it, you have to change your posture. To do it, you have to be motivated by something completely and utterly different. And we can only do that when we gaze at the resurrection and death of Jesus. And that's why he tells us to remember our baptism. That just like whenever God tells Israel to take a stone out of the Jordan River when they cross into the Promised Land, he says, you put that stone in your house and you remember every time you look at it that I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the house of slavery. I alone am the one who rescued you. And I am the one that is mighty, and I did it, that you would fear me forever. And God knows exactly how hard it is to be obedient. That's why He tells us to look at our baptism, that it might point us to be reminded of who He is. And Paul is telling you to remember your baptism because you have a new Master now. A Master that won't abandon you or leave you, that won't leave you in the grave. They won't leave you all alone, won't leave you to yourself, but He's actually transforming you into something altogether new. That you were once dead and now you're alive. Your baptism tells you that when you're faced with the trial of sin, that Jesus tells you, you remember that I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the house of sin and slavery and death. I was crucified on a cross. Don't look at your sin. Look at me. Look at me. Hanging on a cross, covered in my own blood, pierced side with thorns stuck in my head. I was left all alone so that you wouldn't be. I was abandoned so you wouldn't be. I faced death so you wouldn't have to. And I was resurrected so that you would have new life. And where I am, you will be also. Because what's true of me is true of you. And you have been baptized into my name. And that means you belong to me.
and you were mine. And you were precious to me. That's love. That is mega, epic love that will change you. And that is better than any promise sin has ever made me. And when you gaze at that, hopefully we can be just like Paul and say to sin, you are nothing. You are absolutely nothing. At the end of A Beautiful Mind, John Nash is restored and he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. And during his speech, he, he says, you know, I have looked for reasons to do everything. I've searched far and wide. I've searched the world of the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional. He said, the only reason I find anything worth doing is in the mystery of love. That it's love of his wife that stuck with him and never left him and was always there with him. They gave him a reason to go on. And as he's leaving his celebration, he walks out and he puts a shawl around his wife. And he looks over and he sees the CIA agent and he sees the figment of his imagination, the college student, his college roommate, and his daughter. And they just stare at him waiting for him. And he turns back to his wife and she says, what is it? And he says, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And he kisses her on the cheek and he says, Hello, young lady. And he takes her by the arm and they walk off together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we ask that You would teach us to follow You by gazing at You. That we would remember that You have called us out of sin and out of slavery and out of death. Pray that You would teach us the value of obedience. That we would learn to be Your sons and daughters. That we would learn to taste holiness and find that it tastes far sweeter than the promises of sin. We thank You that You stay true to Your promises and that You will not abandon us to the grave. We thank You that by Your grace You are transforming us into something altogether new. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.